Pastor John's message this morning will be taken from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. The saying is sure. If anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. Now a bishop must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, dignified, hospitable, an apt teacher, no drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and no lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, or he may fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be serious, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then, if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. The women, likewise, must be serious, no slanders but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, and let them manage their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. As I pondered what text I might open for you on the beginning of Family Week, the criterion that I used in my search was this. I wanted to find a text that connected the family of God and the families of man. I wanted to find a text that pulled together and showed some kind of relationship between the family which is the church and families which are in the church. See the connection I'm talking about? The church as a family and the church as made up of many kinds of families. Using that criterion, I hit upon 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. And what I'd like to do to open the text is begin at the end of verse 5 and take it a phrase at a time, moving backward through the two verses. So we start with this last phrase of verse 5, namely, God's church or the church of God. And the first point of the message is real plain and straightforward then. The church is God's and not man's. Belongs to God and not man. But I want to know more specifically, does the church belong to God the way the moon belongs to God? Does the church belong to God merely the way the nations belong to God, which they most certainly do belong to God? He made them. He rules them. Or is there more to it? And to answer that question, 
What I would suggest that we do is just listen to the phrase, God's church, as the verse flows. Let's start at the beginning of verse 5 and read it and just try to catch the direction this verse is going. It says, If a man does not know how to manage his own household, then how can he care for God's? And you would have expected him, I would have expected him to say, household. And I think, in effect, he does. But he uses the word church. So here's the inference I draw out of the the flow and the connection in this verse. The church belongs to God the way a household belongs to a father. The way a family belongs to a father. So... The first thing I would say about this text is that it teaches that the church is God's and that particularly it is God's family and he is the head over it as a father. Now, I'm going to take a long parenthesis here in the message and talk about singleness during family week because... It seems to me that once we start pondering what it means for the church to be family, you have a wonderful way of talking about the meaning of singleness in family. The person who wrote this letter, you know, was Paul, and he was single. He was militantly single, in fact. Uh, The Lord, whom he loved and served and died for, was single. Jesus Christ. Now, neither of them were loners. They had their very close friends. Paul had his Timothy and Barnabas and Silas and Luke. Jesus had his twelve and his Peter and his James and his beloved John. In fact, uh, Jesus said one time, Mark 10:29 If you leave your brothers and sisters and mother and father and children for the sake of the gospel you get back a hundredfold brothers sisters mothers and children and I think what he meant was any disciple who makes a sacrifice with regard to natural relationships will have it paid back 100fold in spiritual relationships that's what the church should be Brothers, sisters, mothers, it does not say fathers. A loud omission, because we have one father over this whole family. But we can find all the other relationships here. Singleness did not mean friendlessness or lovelessness for Jesus and Paul. It meant, however, chastity, sexual continence, virginity. Both of them stayed single, and both of them stayed chaste, and they commended it to others. For example, in Matthew 19:12, Jesus spoke like this about certain kind of people. They made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And I take that to mean that there are some people who take upon themselves the discipline of sexual constraint implied 
in a life of singleness in devotion to the Lord. They take upon themselves the discipline of sexual restraint, called here, as it were, becoming a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. Paul went so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6, that he wished everybody was single. (laughs) And then he sort of backs off in the next verse, and he says, well, it won't work for everybody. There is one gift and another gift. Now, we often talk about the gift of singleness from that verse. Have you ever noticed that there's the gift for marriage? It's not as though... Marriage is the natural and easy thing, and the tough road to hoe is singleness, and so you need a special gift for that, and anybody can handle marriage. That's crazy. It says there is one gift and another gift. Some get married, some stay single. you got to have help in both cases. Marriage is tough. Singleness is tough. Life is tough in a fallen world. And there is divine help. That's the point. There is help for what the Lord calls you to do. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul, he has some nice things to say about marriage. Right here in 1 Corinthians 7, 4 and 5, he says some of the most glaringly hedonistic things about the married sexual life. In no wife or husband denying the partner their conjugal rights. And in Ephesians 5, he just waxes with uh, seraphic eloquence about the meaning of marriage as God's ordinance, the nest where children are to be begotten and nurtured into godly people, and as a living parable or illustration of the relationship between Christ and His church, and as the place where there are secrets of commitment and union and love to be discovered that are unique. So, he's not against marriage. But for all that, he would not surrender his singleness for anything, nor would he let it be despised. It had its unique advantages, which he played for all they were worth. Singleness in the mind of Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul was not a curse. It was an opportunity. And they took it and ran with it for God. Now, here's an implication. I want the single people especially to tune in. Here is a big biblical implication of what I'm saying. Sexual intimacy is not a necessary part of a fulfilled life. That is a necessary implication of what Jesus and Paul are saying. Sexual intimacy is not a necessary ingredient in being fulfilled as a human being. And when our culture says you can have it all, single or married, and you ought to have it all because you'll be incomplete and lacking in full human experience if you don't have it all, they are calling Jesus Christ a fool. Do you see why? Jesus chose singleness. And he chose chastity. And you know what he said at the end of his life? He said, 
Oh, that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Not 95% minus sex. Jesus Christ never knew sexual intimacy and he never will. And he is the most full, complete, glorious specimen of humanity that ever existed or will exist. Don't you dare let the world tell you that without a fling or without an intimate relationship sexually, you can't be fully human. Jesus Christ is a fool, if that's true. And I hope you single people can take your singleness seriously and stand firm and strong in the face of the folly of this age, which will be unmasked before long. It is already being unmasked, as we will talk about more tonight. Let's go back to the text. That's the end of the parenthesis. 1 Timothy 3, 5. We're at the end of the verse 5. We've learned as our first point that the church is God's the way a family is a father's. And thus the church is all brothers and sisters. But now, here's a second point. Move back just a phrase toward the front of the verse, and it says, How can he care for God's church? He, referring to one of the overseers who's being tested as to whether he's fit to serve, how can he care for God's church? So what we learn from that little phrase is this, God, the father of the church, wills that there be a group of men who care for his family. See, if you were, if you were structuring things, you might say, well, let, let, just let God take care of things. No, no middlemen here. Just let God. I will deal with God, thank you. I don't need anybody to teach me. I don't need anybody to counsel me. I don't need anybody to guide me. I don't need anybody to comfort me. I'm, I'm God's. And God didn't set it up that way. He didn't make you that way. He didn't make me that way. He set it up so that there would be carers. Carers, according to this verse. Caregivers. People who provide care for the church. Now, the whole paragraph, as, as you heard read by Steve, begins with verse 1 where it shows that here are a group of men who are aspiring to be, it says bishops in the RSV, that's probably misleading because we think of a bishop today as somebody who's over a lot of churches, like over the city of Minneapolis or the state of Minnesota or something. That's not the meaning it had in the New Testament at all. A bishop was just a generic term for overseer or elder or pastor. Those are all interchangeable words in the New Testament. And uh, they are over one church. And there's a group of them always in the New Testament, never just one. They are overseers. They are elders. They provide Care for the church, spiritual care and oversight. So that's the second point. The father looks down upon his church and wills that there be a group of men who provide care for his family. Now, third point. What qualifies these men to serve in this caregiving capacity? Well, now we go back all the way to the beginning of verse 5 and we'll read the whole thing and you... 
you could answer it very clearly. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, then how can he give care for God's church? So the qualification is the discovery of certain gifts of management. Management. Now that word manage, it's got all kinds of business overtones, I suppose, to us. It didn't necessarily in Greek. The word means literally to stand before, and as you track down all these usages in the New Testament, half a dozen or so, it has a couple of nuances. One is to stand before in the sense of lead and guide somebody. You can see that in chapter 5, verse 17 very clearly. And another is to stand before in the sense of protect and provide. I think that's probably the main focus here, but the word contains both. You can see that as the verse begins, the focus is on managing a family, and as the verse ends, it's on giving care to a family, namely the church. I think what we have here is a biblical illustration of Jesus' teaching of servant leadership. Remember Luke 22:26, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and let the leader be as one who serves. Not lording it over those in his charge, but by example... Serving. Now, don't you see that same balance here in this verse 5? A, a good manager providing care. So I like to kind of step back from the verse and say what the church needs is managers who have a caring heart or leaders. Let's use the word leader instead of manager. Leader who have, who have caring hearts or caring people who have the strength to lead. If you have, if you have leaders with no caring heart, You've just got a dictatorial mess. And we see them. I mean, back over the several decades here, we've seen certain cults and churches just go haywire in this regard. And But if you have a caregiver who has no strength to lead, the church flounders. It doesn't know where to go. It doesn't move like it ought to and minister the way it ought to. So I think the third thing we learn from this verse is that what the church needs is uh, leaders who care and people who care who have strength to lead. Now, let's move back to verse 4. One more step. And the question rises specifically, what do you look for in a man's household to tip you off that he is fit to provide this kind of care in the church? Let's read verse 4. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. So of all the things Paul could have chosen to focus on in this verse and in this household, he could have said, check out the man's, the way he runs the finances of his house or check out his relationship to his wife or check out his relationship to his servants or the people he employs. But what it does say, not that any of those would be wrong, in fact, they're all implied in the rest of the paragraph, is look at his children. Look at his children. Now, let me say something to children here, and then let me say something to fathers. Most of you kids know the Ten Commandments, at least some of them. The Fifth Commandment, it's really interesting you, you know, you picture Moses here with these, these two tables of stone like this. 
and you got five on this side, probably. It doesn't say that in the Bible. Five on this side. If that were the case, the way you split them up is five and five. The last one on the first table is honor your father and mother, grouped with all the ones relating to God. And then all the others, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't bear false witness. Uh, they're on the other side. So honor your father and mother is on the side with all the God-centered commandments. So my first comment is that, children, you should obey your parents. Now, I get the word obey. I get the word obey from Ephesians 6.1. The word honor is translated or just filled out with the word obey in Ephesians 6.1, where it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So what does this mean? Kids, it means don't have any tone of voice. Don't let any words come out of your mouth. Don't have any shrug of shoulder. And don't do any acts that say to mom and dad, you're dumb. You're stupid. You're foolish. That's dishonoring. That's what it means to dishonor, not to honor. To honor would mean speak with tones of voice, speak with demeanor, speak with content, and do acts that say, Mom and Dad, you're something. You're honorable. I respect you. Don't say you're going to do something and then don't do it. That's disobedience. And if they tell you to do something, do it. And you know, the great thing about it is that Paul, who didn't have to do this when he quoted the Fifth commandment in Ephesians 6, 1. He, he took pains to say, kids, this is the very first commandment that has a promise. All of us kids want promises. And that's no small thing to sniff at. Kids, it pays. It pays to obey your parents. The whole world will say, come on, get off it. Who do you think your parents are anyway? I mean, you can sue them today. Look, God is wiser than the world, and if He says there is promise attaching to obedience and respect and honor and submission, do it, and it will pay. So, I conclude that children are responsible. God comes straight to children in the Bible and addresses them directly as accountable human beings and says, Obey your parents, honor your parents, respect your parents, submit to your parents. And children are accountable to God to fulfill that divine commandment. Now, on the other hand, fathers in chapter 3, verse 4 of 1 Timothy are also told that they are accountable. It says, he must manage his own household well, keeping his children, or having his children, submissive and respectful in every way. This becomes very, very heavy. Very serious. If this father succeeds, the text implies he may be fit, if all the other qualifications fall into line, he may be fit for church leadership if he succeeds in child-rearing. If he fails... He is unfit for church leadership. 
Now, I really struggled with that yesterday because how do you put those two together? God looks children square in the eye and says, you children should obey your parents. You are responsible to and I will hold you accountable yourself for being submissive, obedient, honorable and respectful. And then he turns to the dads and he says, fathers, I am going to hold you responsible for whether you have submissive and respectful children. And you can ruin your ministry if you don't. Who's responsible anyway? Is it the kids? Or is it the dads? How would you put that together? I don't know how to put it together. And so, I'm going to let the two stand. Because I believe the Bible. You can work on it with me in real life at Bethlehem. The two truths are these. God holds children accountable to be obedient to their parents and to, to pay them respect and be submissive and to, and to honor them. And, according to our text today, 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, God holds fathers accountable that their children be respectful and that they be submissive. Now, very practically, what that means for me with my four sons is this. If one of my sons rebels against me, becomes insubordinate, defiant, and persistently delinquent, he, he is responsible. He will be held accountable before God. He will stand before God in judgment. He will bear the social stigma. He will endure the legal consequences. He is a living being accountable to God. But that's not the whole story. The text says that I will be held accountable. I am responsible that my children be submissive and respect me. I am responsible that they be obedient. If one of them rebels against what I teach, becomes insubordinate, defiant, delinquent, I will be held accountable. I will have to reckon with God's discipline. And the consequence will be paid in my ministry. Either it will be interrupted or ended. You can see, I hope, why as I study this and prepare to preach it, I'm just overwhelmed with the seriousness of being a father. Do you feel that serious about being a father, men? who are yet to be or are? Does it grip you that God holds you so accountable for how your children progress that you can be disqualified from the deacon council and the pastoral ministry? What do you do when the text hits you like a ton of bricks like that?
Where do you turn? Where do you go? I'll tell you where you go. Go to a little little private, isolated, quiet place in your house. And you fall flat on your face and cry to God. God, help me. Save my boys. I can't change them. I can't make them Christian. And yet I must. That's where God wants us, dads. Flat on our face before Him in our closets. Now when you get up, there's some things to do. That's what Family Week is about for dads. There's some things to do. Come to the seminars and hear some ideas. Come back next Sunday and hear some more ideas. I want to close with one idea. And I take it right out of the text as I understand it from verse 5. When you get off your knees, having unloaded the impossible burden of being a father onto God's shoulders, go back to verse 5 and ask now, What kind of people does the church need? And you answer, it needs people who are leaders, who care. Or, to reverse, people who care for people and have the strength to lead. But then ask yourself this question. And how was it that the text said you're supposed to bump into people like that? Where do you find them? You find them in homes where the same thing is happening to children. So there's one truth we can take away this morning. Fatherhood means at least the strength to lead and a heart to care. Or to reverse them, a deep, loving, sweet, compassionate care for the children and the strength to lead the household. Let's work hard on this this week. There are a lot of unanswered questions. Let's stand and pray together. The Lord will lead. Almighty God and most merciful and divine heavenly Father, I praise you together with these my brothers and my sisters in your family that you are our Father and that you are filling this grand Father-formed whole in our hearts. And I long, Father, that you would grant to us, fathers, the seriousness that is implied in this text. That you would make us urgent and diligent and faithful, humble, prayerful. And I pray for mothers. Oh, God, grant that the mothers of our church would support our leadership and be full partners in this management. Grant, I pray, to children in this service that they would have hearts to obey, knowing that great promise attaches to submissive and respectful children. And grant to single people in this room, Lord, that they would take their singleness in charge, guard themselves from the lies of the world, keep themselves pure and devote themselves wholly to the cause of Jesus Christ in the church and in the world. Grant, I pray, 
that we would always bless the tie that binds us together in the church. All the people said, Amen.